Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So I know it's a little cozy in here, and um, we kind of like it like that. So I hope you enjoy being near your neighbor. Uh, next week, we're going to put a, a couple more rows up front here, so we'll have a little bit more space, but it's really good to, to be with everybody. It's good to see everybody. We are at the foot of the mountain that is Ephesians, and if uh, you didn't know we were starting that today, you just showed up, you are in for a treat because Ephesians is fun and difficult and scary, and there's cultural landmines in there that you're going to have to be praying for me to navigate well. And there's difficult doctrine that's hard to understand. Ephesians is loaded. And I think it's one of the most difficult books in Scripture to teach, to understand. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I do feel like, if you get our pastor's note, I feel like I'm at the, we're at the foot of Everest together. And it's a treacherous climb that we're about to make. There's a lot of dangerous sections. Um, there's going to be times when we feel like turning back and not addressing some of the difficult things that Ephesians addresses. But if you hang in there with us, when we're done with Ephesians in 15 years, you will be standing on the top of Everest looking out at this beautiful scene, and you will be transformed. If you have the Spirit of God in you and you listen through this series with us, you will be different. You'll see things about God that you never saw before. You'll understand things about Him that you never understood before. You'll be challenged in ways. You'll be pushed in ways in your understanding of God that maybe you never have before. It's going to be a blast. You're ready. One of you is ready. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give an extended introduction to Ephesians. A lot of times when you're, starting, um, when you're starting a new book in the Bible, it's good to give you know, the background of the story. Like if you're studying the book of Philippians, it's good to understand what's happening in Philippi. What's Paul talking to? Who's there? You know, what's this crowd that he's writing to? It's good to understand a little bit about the, his, the history of the city. And with Ephesians, that's not as necessary. And the main reason it's not necessarily necessary to give a lot of historical background to Ephesians is because it was designed to be a circular letter. So Paul wrote this letter in a way that it's general enough that the letter can be read to many different churches and house churches in Asia Minor. And he keeps it at this 10,000-foot level without addressing particular and specific things happening in any one house church. And that's different than some of his other letters. Like in, um, when he wrote to the Corinthians, you know, the Corinthians were really arrogant. And he was writing specifically to them. And we're kind of, we learn about God by overhearing him talk to this church in Corinth. So Corinthians is different, Ephesians, because... He's talking to specific things that are happening there. The Corinthians were very arrogant. They were one-upping each other, saying, yeah, I was mentored by Paul spiritually. And one was saying, I was 
mentored by Barnabas spiritually, these like amazing people. They're saying, I was personally discipled by these guys. And Paul sniffed out this spiritual arrogance. And because of it, he said, yeah, you guys are talking about this stuff. And you're, there's incest happening in your, in your church, in your congregation. He was spiritually arrogant. So he brought up, they were spiritually arrogant. So he brought up this very embarrassing, gross sin tendency that the, that the Corinthians were seeing in their church and not addressing. He didn't put up with the arrogance. He was like, you guys are bragging, and you're letting all sorts of things run rampant in your church without addressing it, so you should stop worrying about who discipled who and start dealing with stuff that's happening in your church. In another place, in the book of uh, Philippians, uh, two people who had done ministry with Paul were, they were like fighting and arguing, and Paul actually calls them out by name and says, you guys need to start getting along in the Lord again. There's too many important things that need to be done. There's work that needs to be done. You both labored side by side with me, and now you're fighting, and he calls them out by name. And this would have been read out loud. How embarrassing would that be if I started doing that? Like, start just giving names in sermons. Like, you two need to stop arguing about this. But Paul literally did that. He did that. I don't think that's not for today, and I would never do that. (laughs) But he did it. It's not the case with Ephesians. It's meant to be read to multiple church communities, so he keeps it at the 10,000-foot level. So you ready to dive into it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Here we go. Get ready. Open your Bibles or look in your bulletins and follow along the notes, and let's jump into it right now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul. Let's stop there. (laughs) So Paul's the author, and he goes by two names. He's got a Hebrew name that's Saul, and he's got a Greek name that's Roman. And this wasn't uncommon in that time for people to have two names. Um, There is a misconception that, like, Jesus changed Paul's name from Saul to Paul. That's actually not true. That's not in the Bible. It's just that he had two names. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. Paul was a Hebrew and he was a Roman citizen. And it's one of those misconceptions that's common. It's like saying that Adam and Eve uh, uh, bit out of an apple, like that was the fruit they ate. The Bible doesn't say Adam and Eve bit out of an apple. And that's what caused sin in the world. But every, a lot of people believe that, but it's just not in Scripture. In fact, it probably wasn't an apple because in Genesis 1, God said you could eat from any tree in the garden that has uh, seed in the fruit. So apples have seed in the fruit, so it probably wasn't an apple. But we automatically think that's what it was. And a lot of people automatically think that Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul, like on the road to Damascus, when he became a really strong Christian, and it's just not in there. Actually, the first person to to really highlight Paul as his name was Luke, who was a doctor, he was a physician, he wrote in, is in Acts 13. And it's because Paul was leaving, was leaving Jerusalem to go reach the rest of the world, as many as he could reach, non-Hebrew people, non-Jewish people. So he was reaching the Gentiles, so Luke starts calling him Paul, because that would have been a better name to reach non-Hebrew people. That was a, a Greek name. So, there's a few interesting things about Paul in regards to this letter. 
And the first thing, and the goal of this, what I want you to see is that Ephesians isn't a cold, calculated list of precise doctrines that we're supposed to learn. It's very personal. It's not impersonal, like you're reading a theology book. It's deeply personal. It's very personal to Paul. He's teaching us out of his own personal experience of God's grace. In Paul's former life, would drag Christians out of their home churches and have them thrown in prison cells for worshiping Jesus. Now, Paul's writing this letter, Ephesians, from a prison cell, writing to home churches, telling them to worship Jesus. It was a 180 degree turn from this guy that was dragging Christians in, out of their homes and throwing them in prison to a man who's now sitting in prison telling those Christians, keep the faith, Jesus is worth it. The grace of God is worth it. Something crazy, something dramatic must have happened in Paul's life to make that drastic of a change. Does anybody like Steven Seagal? Does anybody know Steven Seagal? Do you guys like Steven Seagal? Raise your hand if you know Steven Seagal, because it might not work. Okay. Steven Seagal. Man, Steven Seagal. I'm going to take a risk. Alex does movie things, and it's always a risk to do a movie thing. Okay, but Steven Seagal was like this master Aikido guy. And he was a legitimate, like he wasn't a great actor, but he was a legitimate Aikido martial arts guy. Like he actually was the first non-Japanese person to open an Aikido uh, dojo in Japan. He was an incredible guy. Now, Aikido was designed to, it was originally designed to, if someone's attacking me, to manipulate their momentum in a way that doesn't do great damage to them. It was meant to protect me and the person that's attacking me. It's a very gentlemanly, like, martial art. So, the other key part of that is, though, it's designed to use your momentum against you. So the harder you're coming at me, the more you're going to feel the retaliation. Because what you feel is dependent on how hard you're coming at me, attacking me. That's Aikido. And that's what Jesus did with Paul. He kind of did this spiritual Aikido move on Paul. Now Paul had a lot of momentum coming at the church. He was persecuting Christians. In fact, the first person that died for Jesus was, had Paul like holding people's jackets, essentially, and watching people's stuff while they were throwing stones at this Christian. And it just made Paul bloodthirsty for Christians. Like he was trying to destroy Christians. So the first thing that added to Paul's momentum was this zeal. He was an incredibly driven motivated, zealous person. And he was leveraging all of this natural zeal that he had to attack Christianity. He wanted to purge Christians off the face of the earth. And the second part of his momentum that made him so dangerous was his deep and profound understanding of the Old Testament. Now, he missed the whole point because the Old Testament points to Jesus, but he really knew the Old Testament uh, we see in Acts 22 that he was discipled at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a really respected Pharisee. He was a Hebrew scholar. Um, he was, you know, if you said that you were discipled by this man, it meant a lot. Paul was an expert 
in Old Testament theology. And he used this zeal because he thought that Jesus was like making the Old Testament irrelevant. He thought that Jesus was an attack on the Old Testament, claiming to be God. And so Paul was using all this to to motivate him and to fuel this fire to purge Christians off the face of the earth. And Jesus used this momentum that Paul was using to attempt to destroy the church and turned it. So this same zeal and this same knowledge of the Old Testament, Jesus was actually able to use that to build the church. I think it's helpful for us to look at the moment where Jesus does this masterful spiritual Aikido move on Paul. It's like watching a Steven Seagal fight scene. It's a little different, but it's like watching a Steven Seagal fight scene. It's Acts 9. And this is in your notes. We're going to start Acts. We're just going to read five verses. This is the moment that Jesus flips Paul 180 degrees. But Saul... Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Listen to that language, though. Still breathing threats and murder. That's so menacing. That gives you an idea of what Paul was. That's where I say he was like bloodthirsty. He was so focused on this. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called Christianity. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they called this movement back then the way. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul's saying, can you just make it legal for me to go to Damascus and go through these synagogues? Because a lot of times... You know, Jewish people would become Christians and they would still keep going to the synagogues. And Paul wanted to go to the synagogues and say, all right, who's a Christian in here? It's like someone walking, who's a Christian in here? Boom. And he would get them and he had soldiers with him. He would bound them. He would drag them all back to Jerusalem. They'd be tried. Some of them would be killed for their faith. That's what he wanted to do. He said, give me some letters so I can go there legally and nobody can mess with me as I'm dragging Christians out of these synagogues and bringing them back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's getting there. He's close to this place where he's going to do this. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is after Jesus had ascended to heaven. This is the This is the resurrected Jesus talking to him. And he said, Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh Uh-oh. Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and this light from heaven blasts around him. That's an interesting thought right there, this light from heaven So it's not from some natural source here. It's a supernatural light. And it has such a powerful effect on Paul that he falls down. He falls to the ground. And he hears this voice from heaven. And other people hear the voice, but they're not really seeing what's what's happening. 
And the voice says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. That's trouble for Paul. The implication is when you become a Christian, you are so, it's called the mystical union with Christ. You are so united to Christ through the Holy Spirit at a spiritual level that if someone persecutes you, they're persecuting Jesus. That's how Jesus sees it. And you're not only mystically united to Christ through the Spirit, you're also united to other Christians through the Spirit. That's why the Bible speaks of Christians having even a tighter bond than blood family, blood relatives, because we are united in the most important way through the Spirit of God as one body. And so if someone comes in here and starts persecuting us and we're a body of believers together, we're a church, Jesus would say, you guys are persecuting me actually. This is the body of Christ. This is me that you're persecuting. That's what Jesus was saying to Paul. So Saul, or Saul, Saul being a wrathful man at that moment, Jesus calls him out. You've been persecuting me. You've been doing this to me. He's a wrathful man. He's probably thinking, oh boy, I'm going to get a taste of my own medicine. This isn't good. The whole eye for an eye thing, a life for a life. I'm about to taste God's wrath right here. He's going to just wipe me off the face of the earth. And instead of wrath, he gets grace. And I would encourage you to read the rest of the story because it's amazing how God does it. He makes Paul temporarily blind. And it's kind of like a metaphor. You're blind physically, but he's also saying you've been blind spiritually as well. And a lot of times when God wants to drop some knowledge on someone, he uses this metaphor of opening their eyes. And Paul was blind, and he was humbled, and he didn't get his vision back right away and and a little bit later God gave him back his vision and he also had a new vision of who God was so it was physically yeah but it was also a spiritual opening of his eyes he thought he was getting wrath and he got grace and what I want you to see today is that when Paul writes Ephesians it's not just calculated precise cold dead doctrine it's personal And do you think that Paul might have been thinking back to the road to Damascus when he wrote things like this in Ephesians 1.7? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy You think he felt Jesus' mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you think Paul might have been thinking back to that road when Jesus redefined his life mission from destroying the church to building the church. When he wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Why does Paul talk about grace so much? 
It's not an empty doctrine to him. And this is not your own doing, he says. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's like, the works that I chose was to persecute Christians. But God had chose something before I was even born for me to do, that there's no way I would have chosen that. But Jesus did. Do you think Paul was a little amazed that God would use a man like him who used to persecute saints? And if you're a Christian, you're called a saint in Scripture. You don't have to go through a ritual to get the name saint. It's given to us. And in Ephesians 3, 7 through 8, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm the very least of all the saints. I was trying to wipe them off the face of the earth, and this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the very message I was trying to eliminate. That's spiritual Aikido. And as you're reading through the book of Ephesians, it becomes clear that the person who wrote these words is someone who is profoundly touched by the grace of Jesus and has never recovered. Because he's trying to teach doctrine and he keeps breaking into doxology. He's trying to teach important new things about God and he keeps breaking into these long run-on sentences of praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and it's like he can't get through the letter talking about God's grace without being hit by it and touched by it and I guarantee he probably cried multiple times reading this you can see it in his words you can see it in the tone of the letter there's no way he made through it without crying he just wants to teach and he breaks into worship it's personal to Paul. He's tasted the grace he's writing about. And he can't believe that Jesus is using him, the least of all the saints, to spread this gospel that will make more saints. The stink of it is, God didn't just use Paul in spite of his past. He actually found a way to use Paul's past for his glory. The very things he did, he used it for his own glory. And one implication of this for us is, in the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted. Nothing. God will use all of your life. The mistakes, the misdirected passions, the unwise moves, the things that you regret, all of it. There's nothing in your past that he cannot redeem. And God uses Paul as an example to prove that. I mean, what have you done in your life that's worse than what Paul did? Raise your hand if you've ever dragged Christians out of their homes and had them killed for their faith. Has anybody done that? We're going to call security if you have. We're... <laughs> Got security here. Okay, we're good. So nobody's done that? So nobody's as bad as Paul. 
And he wrote 30% of the New Testament. If you line it up just with words, he wrote 30% of it. He was the worst of the worst. He said, he actually says later, I'm the worst sinner in the world. He starts with the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians here, 3.8, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. And then later, 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, actually, I'm the worst sinner in the world. And God probably used him more mightily than anybody else other than Jesus for his kingdom. Jesus is making a point. Now, Satan's going to try to convince you otherwise. He'll be chirping in your ear, God can't use you. Look at your past. Look at what you're doing now. Look at who you are. Look at what you used to do. But what God tells us through the life of Paul is, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. There's nothing that you did that I can't work with, not just in spite of, but with. And I see how God's done it in my own life. You know, my parents were amazing and are amazing. They're absolutely incredible people. But, you know, I still went to college and found a way to drift a little bit and go off the tracks a little bit. And if you'd have seen me in college, you'd have been embarrassed. Laziness, laziness, apathy, promiscuity, deceitfulness, depression, cowardice, debauchery. My college life was a mess. My mom actually said, it's probably good I didn't know half the stuff that was going on. When I became a pastor, a lot of my friends were like, can anybody become a pastor? Like, what? <laughs> like, do you not have to be a Christian? To, like, you, you're allowed being a pastor? Maybe I should be a pastor. Like, I because when God started calling me into ministry, I was like, there's no, pos- there's no way you can use me. There's no way. And he said, son, I can do whatever I want. And God began using all these things in my life that I thought were a waste. He did that Aikido thing. I was an art major, and I joke about this. I was an art major, but I wasn't a really good artist. So I would take all these studio classes. You <laughs> were learning how to paint. And they were so nice. I'm painting watercolor and... The professor's like, hey, do you draw much? You gotta be able to draw first. Uh, I was like, not really, but I, I'm a basketball player. I don't know, it's, it's fine. And so one of the things that I, so I wasn't good at, so I, I'm, I'm like looking back at that later in life, like why was I an art major? Like why did I, I, I should have done something more redempted. I should have taken theology. I should have taken like Bible classes or something. There's so many other things I could have done. But God used even that. Now, one of the things they train you when you're an art major is how to critique art because you, this is embarrassing. You have to put your stuff up and everyone critiques your paintings and, you know, we're critique- they finally get to mine and everyone's like, oh, great, you're, you are trying hard, you're trying hard. And like the professor would always use mine as an example, like he would start the painting for me and do two thirds of it and then I just had to fill in the rest because he felt so bad for me. But I wasn't good, but we had to like critique everyone's art. And what they taught you is when you're critiquing art, you're not just looking at like, you know, the brush strokes or the technique or how realistic it looks or what you're looking is, you're looking through those things to see how the artist was able to conjure up a certain feeling in you as you're looking at the art. And that's how you judge art. How, what was this artist wanting me to feel? What was he expressing 
in this. So if you look at, you go look at a majestic mountain outside. It looks beautiful and it takes your breath away. And artists, if, they're tr- if it's realism, they're trying to paint that mountain in a way that highlights the things that make you feel majestic when you look at it. So when you look at a little canvas, you get the same feeling that you get when you look at the mountain. So when I got into ministry, sermons became my canvas. And teaching scripture became my canvas. Because the goal is not just for you to hear objective, cold, doctrinal truths about God, about the gospel. The goal is for you to experience them. To not just hear how Paul was forgiven by the grace of Jesus. That's a doctrine. You're forgiven by the grace of Jesus. The goal is for you to feel it and to experience it and to believe that it's possible for you too. God redeemed it. What I thought was a wasted part of my life, he was able to use it because I would have never learned that. And he also used my mistakes and my character flaws to give me a greater sense of gratitude and shock and wonder that he would use someone like me to talk about someone like him and to make everybody else who hears this message believe that Jesus can do the same with them. There is nothing about your past that is beyond the reach of his grace. The book of Ephesians was written by a man who in his previous life was described as breathing threats and murder against anyone who followed Jesus. A man who was on his way to Damascus to drag more Christians out of their homes to be tried, persecuted, killed, often for their faith. A man who was just about to enter Damascus to do that very thing he set out to do and was intercepted by the risen Christ. And instead of being met with wrath and retribution and vengeance, was met with grace and forgiveness. It's not just a cold doctrinal statement. It's one of Paul's most heroic attempts to convince us that there is nothing in our lives beyond the reach of God. Well, if we keep going out this way, it's going to take us 46 and a half years to get through Ephesians. I actually calculated it out. We're one word in. And next week, we're going to get the second word in, so it's going to be awesome. Now, we're, we're going to do, we're, I promise, we'll probably, probably won't do another one-word sermon, but you got to know Paul. you got to know his heart to understand the letter. So um, I'm actually just going to ask Alex, Pastor Al, to come up here now and lead us in communion. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.